Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. In order for punk bands to tour back in the 80s, they had to do major research and sometimes spend all day on the phone just to book a single gig. Or, if they were lucky, they could ask Kamala Lynn Parks to do it for them. And she often did. But it became too much to handle, so in the early 90s, she wrote an article for Maximum Rock and Roll called Book Your Own Fucking Tour, which inspired them to create the handy booklet Book Your Own Fucking Life. Book Your Own Fucking Life single-handedly changed the touring landscape for DIY bands, enabling thousands of ska and punk bands to hit the road. Kamala, our guest today, was also heavily involved in the East Bay punk scene at the time. Her and Victor Hayden spotted the 924 Gilman Street building and convinced Maximum Rock and Roll to make it be the all-ages venue they'd been talking about for a while. She's also a musician and has played in several bands like Kamala and the Carnivores, Plot 66, and Cringer. I don't know where my life would be if Gilman hadn't happened. It's such an institution in my life. Just the fact that it's, you know, the birthplace of a band like Operation Ivy that was so huge in shaping what I thought about punk rock and ska. And then later going to shows there and playing shows there. And it being this continual presence for every new generation of punks to have. I don't think I can really state the gravity that Kamala's influence in my life has. Also, the foundation of DIY booking that eventually turned into Book Your Own Fucking Life. My band would have never toured if Book Your Own Fucking Life didn't exist. So many bands wouldn't have toured if Book Your Own Fucking Life didn't exist. If you listen to any interview with a band from that time period talking about starting out, every single one of them mentions Book Your Own Fucking Life. The way I met Kamala actually was I did an article on the film Turn It Around, the East Bay punk documentary that Corbett made. I asked him who else I should interview, and he said she interviewed Kamala because she was a producer on that film too, and she was in the movie. And we had a good interview, and then somewhere in there, she just kind of casually mentioned that she was basically involved with creating what became 
became Book Your Fucking Life. And I stored that information in my head. I'm like, I want to write about this at some point. And then, you know, when my book started becoming a thing, I got the idea that we should definitely feature some Book Your Fucking Life. So I interviewed her for the book. All very, very interesting. Every tidbit I learned from her about that. It was amazing talking to her. I want to know the first show that you ever booked. I don't remember, honestly. So this is what I do know about probably the first show I booked, which was that it was most likely a result for after I booked a band called Clown Alley, who are from San Francisco. I booked a West Coast tour for them. So they went up to Canada and came back down. And then I seem to remember after that time, I got calls from touring bands. So whatever the first show I booked locally, it had to have been a touring band because it was related to booking Clown Alley and people then knowing my name and calling me and saying, hey, you know, I booked a show for your band. Can you book a show for my band or my friend's band or whatnot? Why did they even ask you to book shows if you hadn't booked shows before? Because I guess I was sort of their manager. We we never really used those terminologies, but they were a band that I hung out with them. I loved the band and they were like, hey, we want to do this tour. Can you arrange it? And I said, sure. (laughs) So, okay. This is, do you know what year this is or roughly what year this is? The Clown Alley tour? It must have been in 1985. And so how did you go about figuring out how to book a West Coast tour for this, for this band? Luckily, I had been a scene reporter for Maximum Rock and Roll. And I knew Maximum Rock and Roll was a fantastic resource for these types of things. So I, as a scene reporter, would put my contact information, which at that time was my phone number, I would put that into my scene reports. And so people could contact me, they could call me. And similarly, others did the same thing. And if they didn't, because I had the insider track to Maximum Rock and Roll, if I wanted to get in contact with someone, I would ask Timmy O'Hannon or someone at Maximum, hey, do you have the number for the scene reporter in Portland, Oregon? Do you have the number for the scene reporter in Victoria, Canada? And then they would give that contact to me. And then uh, those people usually either did shows themselves or would lead me to someone else who did it. This is so long ago, but can you recall maybe the amount of hours it took you to book this Clown Alley tour? All I know is that I was on the phone a lot. And I had a very expensive phone bill at the time because obviously at this time there was no email. It was very expensive to call internationally, which is what you were doing when you were calling Canada. But, you know, I'd say that it depends on how many dates a band would end up doing. Just as a rough estimate, I'd say each date probably took me about an eight-hour day, like to kind of get to the final part that I could actually (laughs) say, okay, this is booked. I can get on with my life. Yeah, I remember booking DIY tours in the 90s using Book Your Own Fucking Life. And that is like, you're starting with this foundation. And even that was a lot of work because not everyone was still booking by the time you got to it. But you were starting from complete scratch 
you know, at least the early tours you did. Absolutely. Early tours were from complete scratch. There weren't a lot of other people I could talk to. There were a few people booking tours, but, or booking shows for bands, I would say, but really I started from scratch with gathering that. But once I got that list together and I, I got a decent enough reputation for being someone who brought decent bands through. It certainly got a little easier after that. But the first tours were were very, very labor intensive in terms of getting it. But like you know, someone who does a show one year may be out of the whole game the next year. You weren't able to find like someone on the internet. So if someone's phone number changed, they moved or whatnot. And you know, sometimes you just lost someone to the ether because they just they were no longer there. And then you'd have to try to find someone else. Luckily, most people were fair. If they had the same number, but they weren't doing shows, they were usually pretty generous or pretty knowledgeable about others. And so, again, it's that same ripple effect that, okay, call this person who leads me to this person, who leads me to that person, who finally like leads me to someone who can book a show. It was definitely very labor intensive, especially at first. I did find that when I was booking tours later on and I was using email more that I don't think that those, so that was more in the 2000 area, 2000s area. I felt like the tours weren't as good quality because I don't feel like I got a good sense of the person through email. So there were some advantages to really speaking to someone and getting a good sense about if they were reliable or enthusiastic or whatnot. So did you not really book locally in the East Bay much then? So I booked my own gigs for mainly that bands were touring, but I'd put local bands on the show. But the whole impetus for doing the show was usually a touring band or two touring bands. So that was usually, okay, I'm motivated to do a book a show and I want these local bands to play. I would also organize shows for other bands, Operation Ivy, uh, Green Day, my own band. I would definitely organize those shows for those as a representative of a band. You know, people locally were able to pretty much organize their own shows. It, it was more when they had to go out of town that they got a little bit flummoxed. And so that was more my specialty. What were your bands that you were in in the 80s? So my first band was called Kamala and the Carnivores. Um, it was originally started out as Pioneers of Hell. We started out as a three-piece, all-female three-piece. And then our guitarist left to move to New York. And we got this guy, Dino, who joined our band. And, and we also got a second bass player, because why not, uh, Carrie. But Dino, turns out, was a religious person. And we didn't know he was Christian. And he, we, we had a show booked on Easter, and he said, there is no way I could play in a band called Pioneers of Hell on Easter. <laughs> Not Easter, though. <laughs> Not Easter. So we had to um, come up with a name. And the joke was, whenever we'd go out to eat, that it was come on the carnivores because I was a vegetarian and you know everyone else was a meat eater. And... So that was sort of our joke band name. And my bass player, singer, Ivy, said, well, we we should just call ourselves Kamala and the Carnivores. And I was dead set against it. I said, I do not want my name in the band. 
And she said, well, you have to think of a better name by X date. Otherwise, it's this, you know, it's this name. And of course, for the life of me, you know, I can think of great band names at any other time, but could not think of one good band name. So thus, that's how that's actually how we got renamed to come on the carnivores. And then Ivy ended up, we went through a number of members. At one point, Ivy just threw up her hands and say, okay, this is enough. And so she joined Sweet Baby Jesus, keeping with the Christian theme. And I, I joined um, Cringer, which Cringer had moved originally from Hawaii. They're one of the few bands, punk bands that came from Hawaii And they had moved to L.A. first and then they moved to San Francisco and they had lost their drummer in that those um, displacements. So I joined Cringer again midway through their career or midway through their existence. And then that lasted for a couple of years. And then I was in a band called The Grups that was with Matt, who played guitar in Op Ivy. He was the guitarist and um, two people from Blatz, Anna and... Jesse, and then Deb, who was a fellow tour booker person. So that was the grups. And then I was in Naked Aggression, too, for a little while. And that that didn't last very long. But I was in them for probably a little less than a year and recorded their first album, their first full length with them. And that was it for the 80s. And then I was in a band in the 90s called Hers Never Existed. And I'm in a band today called Plot 66. So, you know, I'm just uh, decades. I just keep going. A lifer. A lifer. Yes. Hopefully I can keep it going. I'm interested in what the punk scene was like pre-Gilman. And that I know that for a while there was a hardcore scene that was kind of aggressive. And then that kind of died down. And then there was sort of a punk scene that basically built up to what became Gilman. So I'd love to hear your perspective on on that, what you what you saw in those eras. I would say when I first got into punk, uh, locally it was it was really the crossover metal punk era, which actually was not really what got to my heart. We had some really good bands. We had Special Forces and we had the Dicks. Uh, those were probably my two favorite local bands, as well as we had Seven Seconds, who was from Reno, but they're practically in this area. But what I really liked, I liked the bands from L.A. at that time, the Adolescents, Channel 3, those bands, I would drive down to L.A. to see them. And England was producing, had the Subhumans and other bands, the instigators that I just, I loved those bands. And they, to me, that's what really drew me in was, especially the subhumans for me was really what did it for me because the lyrics were focused on animal rights and focused on political stuff. And they'd provide resources when you bought a record, you know, where can you buy cruelty-free products, which at the time, it's just nowhere near mainstream media. (laughs) this information so subhumans really were the one that really linked me in as well as going to see the dicks who were one of my favorite bands but the rest of it was a little bit like very kind of in its trough in terms of awareness 
and uh, kind of political involvement in this area. And we also had a lot of trouble with Durant mob rules, which was DMR. That was a, a girl gang. There was a lot of bullies, uh, you know, between DMR and skinheads coming to shows and beating up on people. It was a really actually not such a great time to be there. You had a lot of the older punks who had been in the scene for a while and they were starting to like die of overdoses and it was very drug heavy scene i'd say it was a little grim honestly when i when i entered into the punk scene and then i felt like dmr kind of disbanded and skinheads were still around for a while especially in the early gilman years but we beat the shit out of them at one point finally and they didn't come back in in mass were you at that night when uh, there was like a major skinhead beating that happened that was in the turn it around yeah were you there oh yes yeah i i wasn't in the melee but i was walking up actually i i don't know where i was but i was approaching gilman from the outside when i saw it all unfold as people spilled out from the club so I saw, I didn't, I don't know what happened on the interior, but I was there as I saw the exterior and what I saw, it was a beautiful sight. <laughs> Skin, <laughs> skinheads just like fleeing out from the door. And then these punks with stools and chains and baseball bats pursuing them. And they all jumped in this beautifully new red truck, gorgeous, like, obviously purchased new and the punks like went up and like banged out like their headlight and put dents in it and everything and you know I'm not normally someone who likes violence but after years of these assholes just coming and picking on us do your own thing if you want to do your own thing you white supremacist but you know they kept coming and they never came after that in mass. Um, they never tried to pull anything. If they did come, they were more respectful. It's a night I will never forget in terms of just dealing with a problem that had been ongoing for years. Yeah, I think it's funny when the punching Nazis discussion became this mainstream debate because this has been an ongoing... Because it's always been okay to punch Well, it's not just that. It's because it didn't just start in 2016. Like, there's a whole history you can look at of, like, when they came in and how when people beat them up and how, what kind of effect that had. It's not an abstract conversation, I guess, is what I'm saying. Yeah, for a lot of people, it's something that actually happened. And it worked. Yeah. <laughs> and it worked. Well, and it was hard because I think, you know, for me, I wasn't on the side of, well, if you engage with them in this violent way you're just stooping to their level. And then there were other people who were like, no, forget that. Just beat the shit out of them. And, and they were right. I wasn't on that side um, for a long time, but I certainly was after seeing the effect it had. <laughs> <laughs> when did you notice the change of it being sort of a crossover metal kind of grim scene to being sort of the, the bands that we think of Crimpshine and Op Ivy and sort of these bands. When, when did that become more of the punk scene? Things started looking up even before Gilman. So I would say it was around the mid, like mid 1986. I would say bands like No Means No and Mr. T Experience, which had been around, Mr. T Experience had been around before that, but 
I think they didn't necessarily have an audience and they started getting a more of an audience of people who were interested in what they were doing. And I don't know if it's because we lost the some of the bullies. I don't know. I feel like there was kind of a changeover, whether it was due to, again, people dropping out because they were burned out or they died or they developed other interests. But I think that Gilman, the establishment of Gilman was really, while things were really looking up beforehand, I think it was quite provided quite a catalyst for a healthier or a more vibrant younger I I hate to I hate to use that term but there was definitely more of a, a younger energy than had been before and especially with a focus on like no alcohol because alcohol is it, it alcohol makes people violent it makes people stupid and up until now, like even when I do shows, you know, obviously I was doing all ages shows, but people would go drink, you know, I mean, they'd bring their alcohol in, they'd drink somewhere or they'd do other things. And I think there was a little more of a like, no, you you don't do that here. You You don't. I mean, not only do you not bring it in, you don't even do it like within two blocks of the place. And I think that really set even though obviously people still went into the bushes and drank and did whatever they did, it was almost like that's not the norm to do that here. That's not what, you know, we're not expecting you. And you can get kicked out if you do, if you do silly things. So if you come in really drunk and you cause a fight, you will be held accountable for that. And you just didn't have that in other places. You didn't have the power to implement something like that in other places. And I imagine, too, um, when you're booking shows at random venues versus you have a space and you take ownership of this space in some capacity that you want to protect the space. And so you feel invested in following the rules so that the space can remain intact. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was crucial because our approval in that in that space, while the landlord was all about it, it was tenuous. Really, it did depend on us being as respectful as possible and not being a nuisance because city council people were dubious about our ability to self-regulate or not be annoying to people. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, 
all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Were the bands pretty well connected before Gilman, or was it Gilman that sort of brought all these different various punk bands that were around together? I think that there was a lot, still a lot of connection. Uh, I I know I went to high school with a number of people who were at Gilman. So Jake Sales and Noah Landis and all the Neurosis people. And Jake Sales was actually kind of an unsung hero, I think, in terms of being our West... Contra Costa County connection. So he was an unusual person in that he lived in El Sobrante, but he went to high school at Berkeley High School. And the reason was because his father taught at Berkeley High School. He would be the link between like Isocracy and Eggplant and other sort of West Contra Costa kids with the Berkeley and Albany kids. So he was really, I think, responsible for making a lot of those connections. I know I met Isocracy people through him. In terms of Gilman, though, Gilman was really crucial for fostering and even making that more an easier thing to do to really get together with people. But it existed before Gilman. And Aaron Comet Bus is another person who I feel like made a lot of connections with people around the area. You have these key people who were really important players in terms of making these connections and then the bands playing together or or just hanging out together. You were one of the two people that located the building itself, right? And and picked it out and said this is the right building. Yes. What was it about that building that you felt like would be perfect? Because it was Maximum Rock and Roll's vision to open a space like this. It was. And they were set on doing it in San Francisco because they had Maximum Rock and Roll had originally been in the East Bay in Oakland, and then they relocated to San Francisco and they were looking for a San Francisco venue. Victor and I, Victor was the, Victor Hayden was the gentleman and him and this guy, Ryan, that I went to high school with, we were the ones who were putting on local gigs in the East Bay. So we would do that at various places. And Victor and Ryan and I talked about trying to find a place. And this was especially after the No Means No show at Owns Pizza. What happened to that show? I think it was just, it was an amazing show. And I think what the high of that show was that it was one of the, all the bands on the bill and the just no means no, as it's just this amazing band blew everyone away and them kind of linking up with victims family. And it was a very positive show. No issues. Everyone had a great time. Like it was one of the easiest shows in terms of crowd management. But the low was that we thought we did a great job and everyone seemed happy. And we thought that we had a venue that we could do this regularly. But 
the owner of Owns Pizza was unhappy, ultimately. He basically said, you need to charge more money at the door. I need more money. Um, you guys drew, drove away my customers for my pizza, whereas we thought we had a place that we could call home and that we could really have some stability that was just taken away. And so after that, we really started thinking, okay, we just, we, we can't rely on other people because they just don't understand what we're trying to do and they just want to make money and they just don't like us. So, so we had planned to find a place. And so Victor started, we started looking and Victor found 924 Gilman pretty early on. And he came to get me at work. I worked at Pete's Coffee Warehouse at the time. And he said, you've got to come look at this place. You've got to come meet the landlord. So I'd say what made Gilman the ideal in terms of what it was, was it wasn't a big space, wasn't huge, but it was located in an industrial part of Berkeley where we would not annoy anyone because everything would be at night and it's abandoned at night. And for, for those of us who lived in Berkeley, we knew that nighttime there was nothing going on there. So we weren't going to, we could do our thing and not be worried about offending anyone. And the landlord or the owner was amenable to what we wanted to do. And as much as I tried to scare him away. What did you do? I said, hey, Jim you know that who's going to come here, they're going to have mohawks and spikes and strangely colored hair and, you know, kind of be someone that you probably would be scared of. And he's like, oh, no, that sounds really great, actually, because <laughs> I don't want anything to happen here during the day because I have my caning shop and I want it to be quiet. So this actually works out really well. Yeah, so he was not swayed by my shock tactics. Then Victor, and I'd say Victor was really instrumental in getting people to, getting maximum rock and roll involved because he was calling Tim. He said, Tim, you've got to come see this place. And Tim said, no, no, I only want it in San Francisco. And I think my recollection is that Victor basically went and picked him up, like forced him, brought him over to meet Jim. And, and that's when he realized what a gem of a place this was and what a rare opportunity it was going to provide to us. The fact that it's unassuming, to this day, it's still unassuming, mm -hmm. is, I think, exactly why it still exists to this day. <laughs> Take its location. It's not in a location where you would normally put a venue. It's a very low-key building. I think that's when one of the factors that's kind of kept it going through the highs and lows. It may. There's also a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff. So, for example, I'll give you an example of one. Jesse, Jesse Luscious, Jesse Townley, was um, very involved in local politics when the West Berkeley-specific plan was being developed. And he was instrumental in making sure that Gilman and sort of that strip would not be targeted for redevelopment. And so things like that, like had he not done that, it could very well be gone because we see how West Berkeley is now developing, especially around Gilman, and it's becoming more and more of a, a residential area, which is in conflict with something like Gilman is trying to do. You know, Jesse really worked with the council person who represented the district 
to make sure they understood the importance of Gilman and to make sure that it didn't get zoned in such a way that there would be incentives for developers to take it and demolish it and build something there. So yes, it's true, but you also have a lot of stories of behind the scenes stuff that's going on. And certainly Gilman has been rescued from the maws of demise, you know, a number of times over the years. I think they're still doing okay. We raised a bunch of money for Gilman and I'm hoping it's it's getting them through as well as I've hoped they've negotiated, you know, with the with Jim and others to make sure that they've reduced their costs. How did Gilman go from being what would have been a venue that you and Victor would have ran to being Maximum Rock and Roll's project? It's money. <laughs> <laughs> Maximum has the money. We did not have the money. And um, they had a very different vision. Maximum Rock and Roll, as of zine, ran with volunteer power, and they really wanted to take that ethos with them with their other ventures. But they had a lot of money lying around because their mag- the zine was actually pretty well distributed, and they wanted to do something with it. They also had a very a strong aversion to anyone making money, whether it's a living or anything, from, from anything music-related. They felt like that made it impure and, you know, you question your motivation. So we did not have the money. Obviously, it was our idea uh, and it was our kind of efforts that led to the motivation or the impetus for Gilman to be established. But ultimately, Maximum, Timmy O'Hannon was a very very strong person and it takes a strong person to do what he does but it just meant that only people who really agreed with that approach were heard or acted on from what i understand the club was run in a different way in the first couple of years to where you couldn't even advertise shows right it was it wasn't even run like a venue in, in a sense right yeah and i appreciated that they they really wanted to turn things upside down in terms of how they wanted to make it a place that people came and experiences happened rather than I'm going to go to this show because this band is playing. I think that the programming was very interesting those first years. I think that there was a lot of amazing creativity, but I think that there was a bit of too much idealism with that. And so it was one of the things, especially the no advertising policy that I just found um, to be a naive way to go about things. I mean, if you are a touring band, (laughs) you know, and you can't, you couldn't even like say my band, you couldn't even like tell someone I'm playing at Gilman, you know, like it was, it was like this kind of thing that you would joke about, like, oh, I'm playing, but you don't know where, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So when this band like Subvert from Washington came down, we laughed and joked about that a lot because I'm like, where are you playing? I can't tell you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did people come? Was there a decent turnout of people at these shows? I would say no in general. I think you had some interesting programming, as I said. I mean, sometimes you'd show up, it'd be a string quartet. Murray Bowles played viola. And so I think one of the times his string quartet that he played in, you know, played at Gilman. And there was a 
uh, another time you showed up and it was a movie about like one of this a famous Egyptian belly dancer. So it was definitely very eclectic programming. And they would also do some fun events like, um, you know, set up a boxing ring and that's going to be the battle of the bands between the naked lady wrestlers and isocracy. And there were definitely creative programming, but ultimately it just, it was so eclectic that other than sort of the core people who loved Gilman, I didn't see how, it, it didn't seem like, you know, you could expand beyond that <laughs> and it wasn't sustainable. I don't know if you know anything about this, but I had heard that the Gilman rules that are on the board and stuff were wildly debated back then about, you know, if they should even have them and, and what those rules should be. Yes, I, everything was debated, but ultimately it was Timmy O'Hannon's way. You could debate all you want, but he was rarely convinced by anyone else. And again, I love him for it. I am the same way. So it's not like it's not like I think he was like an awful person or anything like that. I loved him. He's one of my favorite people and one of the most influential people in my life. But you also have to realize that, you know, people are complicated. One of his complications was that he was very dogmatic and he got more dogmatic as he got older. Do you remember the first show you saw at Gilman? Yeah, I was at the first show. Who who played the first show? Soup, Christ on Parade, and I don't ask me the other bands. When you think about that show, is there like a mental image? It was sparsely attended. It was New Year's Eve. It was rather abrupt because they basically had gotten either their conditional use permit or whatever they need they could get whatever they got from the city was literally gotten like a couple of days before. So it was a very, very, very hastily put together show. It was a little bittersweet for me because, again, I had felt a little sidelined by the process. I had been involved with the meetings and done things, but at, at that point I had kind of decided to go my own way for that for a period of time. And so I did attend, but I don't think I went to many shows the the first few months that it was open. Were you at the um, first Gilman show that Op Ivy played? Yes. And that was with, um, I believe, MDC was the headliner. Okay, I'll believe you. Operation Ivy's first show ever was at Dave Mello's mom's garage. Yes. And then the next day they played Gilman. Yes. Yes. Were you at both those shows? I cannot tell you if I was at the Albany show, but I was definitely at the Gilman show. So you knew all those guys already, right? Yes. What did you think of them that first show? I thought that they were really good at that <laughs> point. I mean, you know, I thought that they were really good. I didn't, this is what I remember is that Jesse was mainly more stationary than we associate with him. And he was kind of like, had his arm crossed, his right arm crossed over to his left side for the majority of the show if i remember again my memory is very fallible so who knows how much of it is true but i just remember him being you know not like particularly gregarious but the music was really good and but it, you know the the sense is, is that you don't necessarily have an objective view of this it's like oh these are my friends look at them they're on stage this is awesome you know like you do that with 
your, you know, whatever next band comes up that you didn't particularly like, but it's like, oh, look, they're my friends. Look, they're awesome. You know, like, <laughs> fantastic. Yay. So I think that was the sense like, oh, look, it's our friends and, and they're doing this cool stuff. And, and this is, you know, they're not awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think the music was pretty solid. I think Jesse had whatever stage fright or whatnot not stage fright, but he wasn't quite in his skin. But I felt like, you know, obviously shows later on, he definitely got to be more of the the centerpiece of it. Um, whereas I feel like the first show it was more the music. That was like the strong point and Jesse was still finding his way. And then, you know, obviously things got flipped to the point where it's Jesse and of course this amazing music, but oh my God, look at this front person who's got an amazing voice and great lyrics and what incredible like energy on stage. Looking back, how many people do you think were at that show? Less than a hundred. I can tell you that much. I mean, it felt more like, I mean, probably around a hundred MTC. MTC had a decent amount of people, but so this was the divide though, is that the older people who had been in the punk scene they really hated the rules. So that's why you hear a lot about, you know, hatred about the rules. They'd be like, oh, I'm not going to go to Timmy O'Hannon's kindergarten. That's basically how they viewed it. So there was a kind of not a boycott. That's the wrong word. But people who were used to the older ways of punk rock, the more, you know, <clears throat> drug, alcohol fueled experiences they really resented Gilman. They hated Gilman and they would not go to a show at Gilman. Even though MDC definitely was one of our more popular local bands, they would play Gilman and not necessarily a lot of people would show up. I feel like there's still, whenever punks start to get into their like 30s and are more into going to bars, like they, even now, they'll still look at Gilman as like a place for like little kids, which <laughs> I always think is really sad. Yeah, I think so too. But, you know, at a certain point, if that's what you want to do when you go out, then Gilman is not your place, you know? But at the same time, you're, and I'm going to be judgmental here, you're just a sad sack of shit at this point. Like, <laughs> 100%. Yeah, like, come on, man, get over it. Really, you can't go out and not drink and not, and have a good time still. To me, it's like the seven second song, you know, I'm going to stay young until I die. And, you know, like, you know, I'd rather. What, what what's the what's the incredible lyric i'd rather work from nine to five than drink to stay alive you know it's a kind of succumbing to the the trappings of your age and um you know and i'm not saying you can't do those things but i'm saying if your frame of reference is well i can't drink there for and and it's for kids so i'm not going to go there i'm like that's really sad so kind of to talk again about your booking of, of tours and stuff at a certain point that you're booking bands tours, don't you you start to develop like a like a code of conduct that you basically tell the bands, right? Like, this is how I want you to act at these shows, you know, so that I don't like burn bridges and stuff. Yes, yes. Every band I ever booked got the lecture from me about how you and it's not just about playing the shows. It was, you know, it was also like when you stayed at people's houses and when you talk to the people who booked the shows and like, unless someone is obviously ripping you off, be nice to this person because they are, you know, 
it's it's a huge amount of effort to put these things on and having done that locally i really appreciated it when anyone you know would try to creative ways to find how to make especially an all ages show happen you know and we're talking about booking it in hotel ballrooms and vfw halls and basements and deserts and you know all these creative ways that people figured out how to accommodate bands that were on tour so any band if i booked them they would always come over before they'd leave on tour usually the night before or two nights before they were planning to leave and i would give them their routing their itinerary all the things that they needed for the shows and they would get my lecture about you know leave when you stay at someone's house leave it cleaner than when you came in even if it means doing someone else's dishes be considerate don't be a creep thank the people who are doing the shows so absolutely everyone got that and if people wanted my contact list they got the same lecture i would allow them to say yes you you can say you got the number from me but <laughs> X, Y, and Z. So, so Spitboy was an example of a band who, it was interesting because I was actually on the outs with two people in Spitboy when they asked me if they could get my contact number. So I was very close with the bassist, Paula, but Adrian and I were enemies because um, she was dating my boyfriend, my, my first boyfriend, Lenny, after me. And so we were in conflict um, for various reasons, like our bands would be booked on the same build together. And I'd call Lenny and I'd say, can you please not come? Because there, I, I have to be there. And then she'd find out that I asked him not to come. And she would call me and be like, how dare you tell him he can't come. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so stupid stuff like that. Michelle Gonzalez, drummer, she and I had been in come on the carnivores together. We had lived together. We had worked together and um, we had a, a bit of a falling out. So two people in Spitboy and I were kind of on the outs from with each other. And then, but I was really good friends with Paula and Paula said, you know, like, we could really use your numbers. We could really use your expertise, but we want to book the tour. So yeah, I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll give you my numbers, but you all have to come over and uh, have, have that lecture. So they all did. It was good because at that point, Adrian and I, kind of started to realize that we liked each other and by that time she'd had enough experiences with Lenny to understand why I was so insane so I think that there was and Lenny hated the fact that she and I started to become friends so that was a that was a funny side story and then Michelle and I have um you know I'd say in recent years we've become close again and sort of like patched up our differences so it was a really good catalyst for us to start to rebuild or to build a friendship I didn't really know Adrian before that but um and Adrian and I are are still close to this day I mean we we talk to each other and see each other regularly Was there any of your rules or lectures that were more difficult than others to get bands to be on board with no, I wasn't crazy about it. It was all common sense stuff. So the bands I booked were very, very, very respectful. And I just generally did not book bands where even if I liked them, if there was someone in the band that I felt like wasn't going to be respectful, I wouldn't book them. We'll be right back after this. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. I mean, I think this definitely rang true then, and I still say it now, that Punk rock is a small town. Mm-hmm. I think that speaks for itself. Absolutely. You booked Crimp Shrine for a three-month tour, <laughs> and <laughs> the bass player quit <laughs> midway through the tour and was replaced. Yeah, tell me. Let, let me hear that story. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. So, yes, Crimp Shrine, very long tour. They wanted to go out for a long, long tour, and I think part of it was that Aaron, Aaron Comet Bus, you know, he always lived in the same house, the same area. And I think he really wanted to experience a different life. He was feeling that. Um, but for whatever reason, they wanted a long tour. So I did. I booked a very long tour, the long, probably the longest tour I booked. And then they got, so it wasn't even halfway through. I feel like it was like maybe a third of the way through. Pete the bass player who had the van. So it wasn't just, <laughs> it wasn't just the fact that he was the bass player, but it was his van got to a point in Florida where he just said, I'm out of here. I'm driving back. So he and his van came back to the West coast. And then Aaron and Jeff were left to scramble. I don't know how they got from show to show until Paul Curran drove out in his pinto to <laughs> so they're they're touring in this pinto that breaks down regularly and it's all very there's no dependability in terms of them being able to make it from show to show and so at that point i think i gave them my my full contact list and my calling card number and i said okay you guys are kind of on your own try, you know, try to confirm with people, but you're going to have to figure out because I just, there's no way I can book a tour for you if your car is always breaking down. So they, they did kind of figure, muddle their way through the rest of the tour, bless them for doing that, but came back with a huge, huge phone bill. Like at that time, it was like $900. Oof. Wow. Which was huge. And they had no way to pay that at all, nor did I really, but I had to figure out a way to pay it. So Aaron, again, bless him, just basically worked his took us off and, you know, paid me back little by little. Meanwhile, Jeff, after the tour, kept using my calling card number <laughs> to make phone calls. 
So um, eventually I obviously had to get that replaced. And to me, it was kind of a, a measure of sort of Jeff is not a particularly um, ethical person, let's just say. And Aaron paid his portion too. So Aaron, amazing. Jeff, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> so did they play? Did they play a fair amount of shows in that three month period then? Or did, did they miss a lot of shows? I cannot remember how many shows, like how many hits or misses they had. I know that there were a lot of impromptu shows that, you know, they showed up in a town and they would call someone that was either they had gotten the number four from me or someone else and they would try to like get a show. And so there were a lot of sort of last minute shows that they managed to to get on. But I think they did hit a good amount of the shows, but not not everyone for sure. So that was that was a bit hard to recover from as a booker, but I think most people understood what happened and you know didn't hold it against me. But then I had to book Neurosis, and at that point, so I think it was Neurosis's first tour, and lo and behold, who is in Neurosis? Pete, <laughs> bass player of Crimpshine, who had left, and. He was someone that I had to have a huge conversation with and say, you know, how are you going to convince me that you are not going to do the same thing that you did to Crimpshrine? Like leaving, <laughs> leaving the band in the lurch by leaving them and taking the van with you. And he somehow managed to convince me that he wasn't going to do that. Did he give you a reason why he just left all the way from Florida to drive straight back the west coast i'm sure he gave me a reason i mean he must have given it to i i was so infuriated at him that i'm sure that if he tried to talk to me after he got back i would have been just like the hand would have gone up and it's like i don't even want to hear it but with neurosis i think he had to explain to me and you know like all these things there's usually interpersonal issues i mean that's that's uh that's the crux of things and Honestly, I think it was probably something between him and Jeff and, you know, having dealt with Jeff, I understood like after. So maybe I maybe I was a little more amenable to what he had to hear after kind of my own dealings with Jeff. You booked basically what it was the only op IV tour. Yes, sadly. You said I, I started working on a second tour, which I, I know I must have. I just don't remember like yeah. how far I'd gotten. Um, but I, I know I did because I had bought a van for the purpose of driving them on tour. How long was the was the Op Ivy tour? This the one that actually happened. I think it was something like five weeks. I mean, it was enough for for them to get out to the East Coast and back. And you weren't on that tour, though, right? I was not, sadly. Did you hear like any feedback, you know, from from people, your contacts, or from just people in other parts of the country after they'd seen Op Ivy? Yeah, I mean, I think most people really, um, they liked them, but their crowds weren't huge. If you've watched video of them performing across the, the country, you, you can see them putting on an amazing performance and there's 30 people in the crowd. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people really liked them and were really jazzed by them. But I felt like when they got back, like their absence here, in, in their absence, their reputation grew. And so when they came back, we started seeing those big crowds at Gilman. Uh, Kamal and the Carnivores played their Welcome Home show. And I think that was the first time Green Day played Gilman or something like that. I think they were on that bill. 
No, they were on Op Ivy's last show. Forget it. But yeah, it was interesting. Like I remember when they came back and for for us, it was like a decent sized crowd was there for us as an opening band. So it started feeling like and there were people that we didn't know coming before. It was like you pretty much knew most everyone there. And it's it was kind of an interesting. I don't know what necessarily happened in that time frame. I think, you know, the seven inches, the seven inch had been out and the comp and, and more and more people, I think, started getting interested in them. A couple of things that I learned from talking to Dave about that tour was, first off, they became more ska through that tour because they had been able to play back-to-back shows and they would kind of jam a little bit more and kind of jam out to some of these kind of ska and reggae rhythms. So they got more comfortable with it. And that really, they they had such a good time on tour that that really drove them to to want to do a full length. Yeah, they came back. So they were having kind of interpersonal issues before they left on tour. I remember there were some blowouts that were going on and then but when they come back came back from tour they definitely had like whether it's a sense of purpose or they were just really uh really close a very strong bond between all of them and um so it was a thing of beauty to see them come back and be really happy like they had a great time on the tour and then unfortunately it did start to devolve again after a while but the tour really did bring them together which was amazing to see and they were kind of focusing on their album for that next period of time weren't they yes and i was living with uh matt freeman at that time so we were living in emeryville uh it was matt this guy tony um, from albany new york and me we were all living at this place in emeryville so they were recording and then releasing the the record at that time yeah because the recording was like a whole process i know that ultimately they recorded the full length with kevin army in like a day or two and that's the album that we all know but get to get to that point it was a huge process sure yeah what was it <laughs> they um recorded they were they recorded demos or a first version at the gilman or at gilman first with um some guy who was sound guy at Gilman. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been Marshall. Yeah. And they just weren't happy with the results. And that was like a long process. And then, so it was, it was either Marshall or Radley. I I don't know who it was, but Radley was Radley. Yeah. It was Radley. Radley. Okay. So Radley had a vision and they were following him along on this vision and it was like long process and overdubs and all this stuff. And then eventually they're just like, this doesn't sound great. And then they hooked up with Kevin army who they'd worked with on the turn it around comp and like first seven inch or something. And it's like, let's just do it, you know, to pump these songs out. And that, you know, it was the right, the right choice. Cause that's exactly, that's the exact energy about those recordings that I think everyone loves. Yes. That sounds right. So, okay. You almost you almost booked for Fugazi, right? Yeah, that was an interesting experience. So at some point after I had been booking for a while, Ian Mackay called me and he said, hey, you know, we're looking for someone to book our tours and we're wondering if you're even interested. And of course we would pay you. Or, or, no, I said, I said, yeah, I'm interested. I mean, I'd have to figure out how I could do it because obviously I wouldn't charge you money. He said, 
what do you mean you wouldn't charge us money? <laughs> I said, well, you know, I, I don't charge money for it. He's, and he said, well, why not? I said, well, because, you know, I don't want it to be a job and I want to, you know, make sure I'm doing it for the right reasons. And he's like, so what if you could do it even, you know, for bands that you like and still get paid? And I was like, well, I don't know. I was very indoctrinated with kind of the maximum rock and roll way of doing things. And ultimately, they did choose to go with someone on the East Coast because they wanted someone who's in their same time zone. But yeah, I, I mean, I didn't lobby for myself very strongly to do it. As much as I love Fugazi, I, it was just more like, well, you know, I don't know. I, I have this, that, and the other, and I'm going to school, and I'm doing this, so I'm not sure if I have time. And he's like, well, you could get paid to, and I, I'm, it was an alien concept for me. Yeah. And you continued to book after that and still following that principle, right, of not getting paid? That's correct. The only time I ever got actually paid to book a tour was Neurosis's second tour. So I always got, the bands always paid me for my expenses. So my phone bill and um, going to the coffee shop and stuff. I wasn't someone, I know a lot of people talk about, oh, I'd get free copies and I'd, you know, use this dialer for making phone calls. I, I really didn't participate in that stuff. I, I'm just like, yeah, you know, I'm not going to go to like, I'm not going to go make phone calls at a phone booth, you know, so I could use the dialer. I mean, I'm going to do it from home and, and, you know, I'm not going to try to steal anything. I have a lot of trouble with lying and stealing. So I, I generally don't do it. Um <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, but the second after the second neurosis tour, they did pretty well on that tour and they insisted on giving me $80 in addition to paying for my expenses. So that was the nice. only time I, yeah. I I got paid and it was because they forced it on me. But... What is it with being punk rock and not allowing ourselves to get paid? Yeah, you know, well, again, I feel like because especially in the Bay Area, Maximum Rock and Roll was such a big influence. They really indoctrinated us. And again, for better or for worse. I mean, I think there I think there's some validity to that, but I also I think that some of us didn't necessarily think it through or or try to come up with something a little more varied in terms of like how you could how you could maneuver and compromise in a way that it's not even compromise, but how you could still be ethical and earn some money so i always just feel crazy because i I mean i feel like it's just compounded over the years where i'll still talk to other people who are you know freelancing or doing whatever sort of work and everybody has a hard time putting a price tag on on their time even though we shouldn't Mm -hmm. but i feel like a big part of it just comes from that punk rock mindset it does it does and especially if you have kind of a barter bartering or like this is my community you know, it's, it's uh, money is a, it's a complication in a relationship and in a community. So I, I can see both sides. So the book your own fucking life, what leads to book your own fucking life is this article that you wrote called book your own fucking tour in maximum rock and roll. So tell me about what led to you writing that. So at a certain point, it was after I booked Op Ivy on tour and I started getting phone calls all the time 
and and I had roommates at the time. You know, of course, at this time, you only have one phone line for everyone. And I'm getting phone calls all of the time from bands all over the country saying, can you please book my tour? My band wants to tour. Please book my tour. My band wants to tour. Please book my tour. My <laughs> band wants to tour. It would be multiple calls every night that I would get. And so I was talking with Tim. I was over at Maximum Rock and Roll. And I, I basically said to him, Tim, my phone is ringing off the hook. And I'm trying, you know, I'm working full time and I'm going to school part time. I just, I, I, I have to tell, I want to tell these people, book your own fucking tour. Like, don't ask me to do it. And the light bulb, you know, I could see the light bulb above Tim's head. He's like, ah, you need to write an article uh, explaining how people can do this. <laughs> and I said, okay, because I thought, okay, get people off my back, right? So that they wouldn't call me. And so for me, it was a winning situation. Write this article, get people away from me. So I, I did. I wrote the article. I gave my advice. I put in my ethics about how you, you know, how you behave on tour. I put in copies of my hand-created forms that I use because it has in there, you know, like the number of people I call, it fills up a page, like until I finally get someone. It's a whole system for, okay, you call this person. I left a voicemail. I mark it a certain way. I Oh, they called back and they referred me to so-and-so. I mean, you know, it was like... <sighs> But giving those tools for people, but, and I did not have my numbers published, obviously. I said, this is how you build your contact list. And then I left it from there. And then Maximum thought that it was such a kind of important community building idea that that's when they decided to do book your own fucking life. Bring in all sorts of other, you know, not just promoters, but here's restaurants and here's, you know, all the things that book your own fucking life had in it. It was very much a victim of its own success. <laughs> Didn't it um, start as a column? Wasn't it like a column first? And then it kind of blew up into being a, like a, a standalone issue. It might've been a uh, maximum, you know, maybe had like a section of the magazine of the zine that was focused on like resources. And then at a certain point they, they published it as its own standalone thing. I only wrote the first article. I don't, I don't think I did anything after that. Yeah. Yeah. So you weren't directly involved with it, but you basically inspired it. Well, it's cyclical, right? So Tim inspired me to write the article and then I inspired him back or them back to do this other thing. So it's, it's that iterative process. Aaron, you had a copy of Book Your Own Fucking Life, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the only way I was ever going to book a tour in the 90s. And I booked three, three tours, yeah. Yeah, I remember there being a, a copy of it on the magazine rack at Bascom Tower Records. And I remember always wanting to buy it but being afraid that my parents would see it when I bought it. <laughs> and they'd be like, well, what's this? It'd be like worse than finding porn. <laughs> I didn't even know about it, but I was wanting to go on tour or I was talking about it. It seemed like a pipe dream, but then Mike Park was like, go get a copy of Book Your Own Fucking Life. Then you can, you can book a tour. Like kind of just not even a big deal. 
And yeah, I think I probably went to like, yeah, a record store and got it. And I was just like totally mesmerized by it, just that it was broken down by state and it was mm-hmm. broken down by um, category. Mm-hmm. And I would just read all the entries, you know, aside from just trying to actually plan a tour, I would just read it. It was so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, and it's funny when I talk to, um, people who are not necessarily in the punk scene and I try to talk about all these, you know, the Bay area gets credit for all this punk stuff and I, all these major metropolitan areas. And, and I'd say, look, there were the same amazing energy happening in these smaller towns that you don't even know about. And I, to this day, those are still my favorite places that I think about that I played, you know, Minot, North Dakota and Rapid City, South Dakota and Missoula, Montana. These are not the A, how do they divide things up in terms of like A market, B market, C. I mean, this is like the F and G market, you know, but (laughs) they were by far the best, the best in terms of energy. And they had their own, that own sense of, purpose and community and they were doing the same things we were yeah i mean definitely same same here we mostly played the the towns that you probably didn't know of if you didn't live in those states you know these Mm -hmm. with a few exceptions book your own fucking life funneled you into whatever that punk scene was in that city and so you were just plugged right into that and so whatever group of kids were super into the scene right now they they would be the ones booking you and going to the show and so even if you'd never played in that city there was a good chance that there would be you know enough people that it was a good show and and they were an engaged audience shout out minot north dakota shout out fond du lac wisconsin <laughs> shout out fort myers florida <laughs> yep all those spots Best spot. Shout out Biloxi, Mississippi. Hell yes. That was in, I think, a guy's a mobile home, if I'm not mistaken. You played there, didn't you? Yeah. Aaron, is that where you played? Yes, we played a mobile home in Biloxi. In fact, that's one of the, that's the the piece of tour footage that's on uh, YouTube is from that show. Such, that's such good tour footage too. (laughs) Amazing. It's like you guys at full power. So awesome. When we played, I'm curious if you had the same experience. When we played, it was so hot. It was unbelievably hot in there do you remember that when you played that mobile home i've never played the mobile home i never even got to go to the mobile home i only know i only (laughs) no 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 i'm just saying like oh you know of it i thought you said you played you know it well i booked i booked bands there i never got to go there my first tour was supposed to be the second off ivy tour i see instead i went with offspring on tour that was who my first tour was was with them so you booked a tour with them and then went on the road with them? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So and that was fun, but they had a lot of canceled shows. Um, but yeah, had a great time with them. I went on, I booked, a, I think, three tours for The Offspring. One of them was the Grups and The Offspring together. So that was a that was a mutually beneficial experience for me. But yeah, I never got to I never got to go to Biloxi and go to the mobile home. I just heard the stories and I, I booked I booked people there. Did other people tell you that it was incredibly hot in there? Yes. Yeah. The people that ran that show, they kind of warned us. And then they had a funny little story about how like, oh, it's so hot in here that one time we had a contest show where 
bands would play and we would weigh the members before the show and then after <laughs> and whoever lost the most weight during the show was the winner and so bands <laughs> would go in and they would like dress they would put on sweat sweatshirts oh my god oh God. Oh. And like probably faint or whatever, you know, just in order to Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the hottest show I ever played was in Phoenix. It was like a warehouse that had a metal roof in summer and it was the Grups and the Offspring. We were we were on tour together and after the show, I was like during the show I'm like I'm going to pass out. I'm like I I I I'm going to faint. And after the show, I, I went up to the promoter and I'm like, God, it was so hot in here. I'm just curious. Do you have any idea how hot it gets in here? He's like, oh, it's probably like 120 degrees. And I'm like, okay, you know, it's okay that I almost painted. Like, that's pretty crazy to play drums in <laughs> 120 degrees. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> so when was the first time you toured as a musician? Was it the second uh, Offspring tour? No, I cringer. So, and that was a cringer citizen fish joint tour where we did the U.S. and Europe together. So it was a total of four months being gone. I think it was like five or six weeks in the U.S. and then five or six weeks in Europe with a break in between. But we were gone from here for four months. So it was pretty intense, and I loved it. I absolutely. I just, I was ready to, to tour all the time. I did not want to come home, um, even after that long period of time. So, I mean, it was amazing touring with Citizen Fish. They'd, they'd released their first record and they were working on their second record. And having been a huge Subhumans fan, of course, it was pretty amazing that three people from Subhumans were in Citizen Fish and getting to know them as people rather than as heroes and idols was pretty amazing and citizen fish were just amazing just what an incredible band and i mean same thing with culture shock we didn't tour with culture shock but just being with these amazing musicians and the the kindest and most intelligent people on this long excursion was really amazing and um, really set the tone for me wanting to tour much more were citizen fish were they drawing much i, I feel like Citizen Fish were, they don't quite get their due, especially like in the context of talking about early ska punk, like Op Ivy, everyone brings up Op Ivy, but Citizen Fish were totally amazing too. And they don't get mentioned nearly as often. A hundred percent, a thousand percent. Do I agree with you? I think Citizen Fish was, I mean, I think they didn't fit neatly into the ska category. Um, I mean, neither did Op Ivy, but Op Ivy was really like, they were ska punk. And I think that Citizen Fish, they had enough sort of um, different time signatures and other things that it was kind of hard to say, oh, they're a ska band because there was just the way they approached things was ska influenced as opposed to like a ska band. They definitely one of the best bands. And in terms of crowds, I mean, I think they drew they drew a decent amount. Unfortunately, it was one of those things where it was like still on sort of the heels of the subhumans. And so people would be like, even though we just explicitly say, please do not advertise X subhumans on the flyers that did happen. And so sometimes people would show up expecting more subhuman like music and being disappointed. 
that it was Citizen Fish. But they drew definitely, I'd say we had pretty decent crowds. And I think the other feature of that tour is that it, in the past I had booked tours so that you had many of the days booked with the assumption that at least one week would get canceled or messed up. On So on the Citizen Fish Cringer Tour, there were some times when I booked two shows in one day, um, like a matinee here and then a night show there, thinking that one of them was going to get canceled. And I think through the whole tour, only one show got canceled. So... <laughs> <laughs> In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. So did you play both shows? <laughs> oh, we would play both shows. And then there were like, there were ones where I was like, okay, we're, you know, this one, it seems iffy. So, you know, it's okay. And then, and then it would come through and I'd be like, ah, oh, damn, you know. So we didn't have a lot of days off. I think the only days off we had really were uh, driving days. Like yeah. we had a long drive. But yeah, for the most part, we we definitely like there were not a lot of days off. And I see that you're working for BART now. I am working for BART. So one thing that I want to ask is what punk rock ethics do you take with you into your job at BART? Oh, so many. Um, <laughs> so many. So I'm a planner, a station planner. So what do I bring from punk rock into my job is community engagement. Like I have to make sure I understand what's going on. BART is a huge bureaucracy. It's got a lot of departments. It's got a lot of divisions and everyone is their own little fiefdom. And I have to make sure that, okay, if we're doing electrical work at this station here, do they know that there's seismic work also going on that these other guys, these other people are planning over here? And we also like have to, it's really about gathering a lot of people together in order to come up with a good project. So I do a lot of things where, you know, stations are old. And so we have to come up with a plan for how to modernize that. And that entails really kind of building support and expertise into that project. And I think the other thing that I do is that it's a lot of, when a local jurisdiction near BART does a, a pedestrian or bicycle plan, I'm usually on their technical advisory committee for that. And um, pet and bike stuff like alternative mobility, alternative, I hate to use that term because it's really like greener or better mobility, but really promoting pedestrian and bicycle over driving. You know, so those are things that I, I, I do at BART that I'm really passionate about. And BART, when I was young-ish and I moved to Berkeley, I was, I fell, I was seduced by BART. I fell in love with BART because I had come from San Jose where we really didn't have good public transportation. And 
I was amazed when I moved to Berkeley and I, as a young person was able to get around and go to like all these amazing places without having to be driven. I could do it on my own. And that was a crucial for me in, th in that period in my life. Do you think we'll ever have later trains so that people don't have to leave shows early to get back, <laughs> to get back across the bay? You know, I will say that it will not happen in our lifetimes. <laughs> they are they are working on something called a second crossing where it's going to be, it, it, you know, it's still kind of, it's all very lines on a map. But part of the issue is that a lot of work needs to be done on the rails at night or they the maintenance needs to happen and if you don't shut down at night it 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 doesn't give you the time and unlike sort of the New York system that has a lot of i wouldn't say redundancy but parallel tracks and things like that we just don't have that with BART so as a result it's not really something that i think for that reason it's problematic and also just we just don't have the density and the nightlife to support an all-night service anyway. So, you know, we're not in New York. <laughs> definitely. We're definitely a lot different than New York. Have you ever had to take the night owl bus back across from San Francisco after a show? I have, yes. Isn't that the worst? It's, it is. Um, it's really something <laughs> that there, there are two experiences that I hope I never have to repeat, and that is – and. I mean, I, I really appreciate the Night Owl bus, but it's it's just not very um, efficient, let's just say. And the other experience is riding my bike in the posy tube on the sidewalk where, you, you know, when you're trying to get from Alameda to Oakland, that is one of the single worst experiences I've ever had in my entire life. A five foot wide side, if, is it five feet, four foot wide? It's not uh, even Yeah, that. it's yeah. like, you know, and someone is walking or biking the other way and you have to get off your bike and hold it over the fence so that someone can pass you. It's just, and the exhaust, it's, it's, it's one of the singular worst biking experiences I've ever had in my entire life. So I, I couldn't believe how loud oh it is. God, it's so it is loud. so loud. It is so loud. <laughs> yeah. I did it once and I'm like, I'm taking the bus. I am never doing that again, ever. And it's it's also why I, you know, I I know a lot of punk rockers are moving to Alameda, but it is it is a key reason why I would never move to Alameda. I do not want to be on an island and I never wanna be dependent on having to go through that damn tunnel. It's pretty dope. I'm over here right hey. now. <laughs> hey. hey Well, you know, lots of people are joining you. Mr. Mr. Jake Sales is living there now, and um, Mateo, who's a big Gilman, who's in sarcasm and stuff, is like. Mateo just lives like three blocks. Oh, cool! Away from me. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go hang out with Mateo soon, and I think people are also moving to San Leandro, where I am now. So your band Plot Sixty Six has a new seven inch out. We are so. <laughs> It's not quite out yet. We are probably going to release it in June at this point. So I don't know when this podcast is going to air. We're aiming for the first Friday in June to release it. It's just it's just one of those things is how do you release something during a pandemic? And if I do say so myself, it's, it's one of the things I'm... Usually I record, I get something 
out of the system and then I never listen to it again, really. And this is one that I feel like uh, I listen to it and I'm excited. I'm like, wow, I can't believe I actually played on this. And it's a really good, strong EP of four songs. And then online, there will be six songs. And um, yeah, so we're aiming for whatever the first Friday in June to officially release it. Can I ask who's releasing it? Oh, we're self-releasing. Where can people go if they want to go online? to Our Bandcamp page. So if you do Plot 66 Bandcamp, it will come up and you'll be able to buy the EP, physical EP or download. And I think what we're going to do is the first 150 physical EPs that people buy, they'll get the download for free from Bandcamp that has actually six songs, so two extra songs. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to figure out some other fun stuff to like put on Bandcamp that would be of interest. Um, you know, like maybe underwear, screened underwear with Plot 66 logo on it. Or what, what are your ideas? What would you be excited about having, you know? I like bandanas. I'm I like bandanas. You. Middle-aged queers made a nice bandana. I don't have one, but I wish I'd gotten one of those. Okay, good to know. I have a question, Kamala. You're playing a show. Yeah. yeah. There's a fan that really likes your band. They come to the show. They bring you cookies. Do you eat the cookies? So I am. I have been sober all my life. I've never been drunk or been on same, drugs. Same. Same here. Hey, hey. You and I need to hang out. We should. Were you ridiculed? No. What well, by punks? I was. No. Well. No, because by the time by the time I was in it, the whole straight edge thing was really in full swing and it was like and it was like that the like kind of more militant earth crisis era so like we all wore hoodies and looked tough and so nobody really wanted to and i'm gigantic so nobody ever wants to fight me (laughs) (laughs) i uh well from mostly the older punks they were always like why have you never done any of that you might like it are you judging me like it was it was just i would get harangued I mean, not all the time, but enough that it, it was very frustrating. So anyway, some random fan gives me cookies. I, I don't know. You know, I'd have to, I'd have to assess if they, if they want to drug me right. or not and do something, <laughs> do me harm. And I don't know, you know, maybe I think I have. I mean, I think I have, like people have offered me food and I'm like, oh, great, thanks, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was always starving like so anytime anybody would bring us any food i would not even think about it and just eat it and but then more recently people have been like you don't eat the brownies you don't eat the cookies that people bring and i'm like really like oh man i did this wrong for years yeah 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 we did a show adam and i with our band narboots there's a joke punk news has a joke about if a band brings up you know eat a sandwich and we were doing that because a band we were playing was broken up. So we were, we got a bunch of sandwiches and we were passing them out during the show. Yeah. And everyone was just like, they assumed that there was something deeper to this stunt that we were doing. Like, like we were drugging them. It's like, no, the joke is we're giving you a sandwich. That's the extent of it. We're not trying to poison you or drug you. Yeah. Like, like one, one show, we just had a bunch of extra bagels. And I just remember we just like handed them out during the beginning of our set. And people were like, what are we supposed to do with these? I'm like, I don't know, eat them. Like, I'm just trying to get rid of them. I'm surprised though that people would quit. I guess, I mean, I guess they'd question the band bringing stuff, but I questioned the 
I wouldn't question the band as much as I'd question like a random person. Um, yeah, because it's like you'll get a bad reputation if you do something mean. But I also come from an era, you know, with uh, between blats and isocracy that all sorts of stuff was being brought to shows and and uh, spewed out, and you know, it was disgusting and chaotic, and and that was part of the amazingness mm-hmm. of it. Didn't somebody bring a dead so. dog to Gilman <laughs> and swing it swing oh, it around in the pit? Yeah, well, that was the feeders, <sighs> the feeders show. So yeah, that was um. <sighs> That was that was really an awful show. I was at that show, and the interesting thing. So it was it was the singer of the feeders, and yeah, he had a dead oh, German God. shepherd around Ugh. his shoulders, and he had like cockroaches that were still alive Ugh. glued to his head, and yeah, and then he like play. They sang, and then he like threw the dog out into the pit, and it like got like there were people in the front who were vegan, and they got like covered in this dog's blood and there was like a dead cat there somewhere and um, you know he, he got it from like the spca or something he you know he's like i didn't kill the dog but it was just like it really was a scandal but this was the interesting thing i think it was like a couple of months after that show i remember picking up a weekly world what was that weekly world wwe weekly world what's what's that magazine that that um you know weekly world news and lo and behold there is an article about that show oh wow in weekly world news and it was completely <laughs> accurate <laughs> i was like wait a second if they are accurate about this are they accurate about the aliens and Bat Boy and all the other stuff that they put on the cover. We've been trying to tell you. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Scott. If you haven't already, subscribe to my newsletter at aaroncarns.substack.com. You will get episodes of the In Defense of Ska podcast and other content sent directly to your inbox. If you would like to pre-order my book, In Defense of Ska, go to clashbooks.com. It releases on May 4th, 2021. On that note, we leave you by saying, Ska now more than ever. Thank you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.